For a couple of years, Tom and I have had a problem. We show up places dressed almost identically. We, uh, it really hit a crescendo a number of years ago when for our chaplaincy work, we went to get our carrying permits for handguns. And uh, we were running behind. He picked me up at the house. I came out. We had on identical sweaters, pants, shoes, and shirt. And I looked at him, I said, if you tell anybody our names are Tom and Jerry, I'm going to shoot you. <laughs> so this morning we were kind of, oh darn, happened again. Before we open the Word of God and have our sermon today, I wanted to share with you something that's very important to us individually and as a church family. And that is how God works. A uh, number of months ago, the pastoral staff, which is Tom, Alex, and me, we got together and we said, okay, 2014 is coming. What would we like to do with the church? What, where do we want the church to, to experience something new, something different? And uh, they came up with the idea of service that we would organize the church as a body to do things in the community for service. And so we toyed with that idea, and what I'm sharing with you is the evolutionary dynamic process that one goes through in seeking to follow God. So an idea was created, and that would be that there would be a Sabbath in March where we would all come to church wearing blue jeans. We would have one service, and then everybody would head out and work in the community. We would sweat. We would do what needed to be done in people's homes that uh, they were in desperate need of, of help. So it evolved, or it initially began that way, and it was called SOS, Service Outreach Sabbath. Well, then we got talking about it and thought, well, why are we going to cut off our services, our worship services? That's a service to the community as well. So we put in the, the other two services and the Sabbath schools, and uh, we said, we'll, we'll go in the afternoon. And then we heard from some of you, and you actually asked some questions we simply couldn't answer. And so we got together and looked at it again, and, and we've changed it from SOS. Now it's SOW, which is sow, you reap what you sow. And it's called Service Outreach Weekend. And here's how it works on Sabbath, we will have our normal services all morning. And then in the afternoon, we're going to spend our time in ministry in nursing homes and places like that ministry that is not associated with manual labor and the confusion that it might bring in some people's minds regarding the Sabbath. But on Sunday, we're asking you to give four hours. We're going to have projects all around the community where you will be able to uh, bring your work gloves and your work clothes and your rakes and your shovels and that type of stuff. And on Sunday, we'll give four hours to that service outreach weekend. Now, Sabbath, after you've been out to the nursing home singing and talking to people, and there'll be other, other things associated with that, when that concludes, then we will come back to uh, have 
a nice haystack meal to make it truly an Adventist program. <laughs> so that's the evolution of it. It will all happen the last weekend of March. So we've gone from SOS to SOW and uh, hope that uh, it makes sense to you. We've been on a journey together for a number of weeks now. Moving forward together is the series. And we began with a sermon about the theology of together. And we discovered that heaven, that's the philosophy of heaven, being together. It's all about heaven. It's all about God. It's all about who He is. And so then from there we had a number of weeks where we're looking at being together with God, knowing God. And uh, one of the features was we learned that the word worship in the Greek is proskuneo, which means to kiss. And so being together with God, worshiping Him is an emotional experience. It is to kiss Him. It's to embrace Him. It's to know Him and to love Him. And we went on a couple weeks in that vein, and then last week we began another section of moving forward together, and that is together, together. And we're talking about the church. And we looked at the New Testament church last week, and we saw that it grew dramatically because of the preaching of the apostles. Thousands of people heard the sermons. They became believers, and then they told their friends and family about their experience. The friends and family would join them to listen to the preaching, and they became believers, and the cycle continued. And before long, there were thousands and thousands of brand new Christians, a part of the New Testament church. A description of the work of the apostles is given in one verse. Let's go to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verse 42. And Acts 5, verse 42 simply says this, And daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So we have a description of the work of the 12 apostles. This work was going on daily. It was done in the temple. It was done in homes. It was centered in teaching and preaching. And what they were teaching and preaching was Jesus as the Christ. That means Jesus as the Savior. They were going all out to help people understand that they had a Savior and His name was Jesus. And that becomes core for our understanding of the purpose of the church. It is to teach people that they have a Savior, and His name is Jesus. Now, we see the importance of that. Keep your hand here, or mark it somehow, and go to the right, and you'll come to 1 Corinthians. When you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I want to read a passage of Scripture to you. Now, Paul wrote this. Paul started a church in Corinth, and he had to leave after a number of years. And later, he wrote letters back to that church, and that's what's called 1st and 2nd Corinthians. It's actually probably four or five letters, but they're combined down into two letters. 
And this is what he says regarding his work with them. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, Paul says something very interesting. He says, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why would he have to determine that? Why would he have to make a conscious decision that that would be his focus? Well, there's lots of things to talk about. There's all kinds of topics, there's all kinds of issues, there's all kinds of ideas that are associated with walking with God. But Paul said, look, it is Jesus and him crucified that is the most important. And he brushed away all of the other stuff and he got to the core of it. He got to what it was all about. It is Jesus and him crucified. And in teaching Jesus and him crucified, he was able to declare to the people that God, through this salvation brought to us by Jesus, God is able to forgive us. So the issue of God and how he deals with it is taken care of. Then on the other side of the cross, what does it do for us? You see, the cross is nothing to us unless it changes us. And it has to change us. And we find forgiveness for our sins, but we also find in the message of Jesus crucified that he will not leave us in our sins. He will give us grace. He will give us strength to battle through issues and struggles and habits and things that are destroying us. And he will help us to become a person we never could be without him. That's why the preaching of the cross is so important. Because who we are and who we become, all is there in that teaching. Now let's go back to Acts. So we go back to Acts chapter 6, and we're going to watch the church evolve. Thus far, we've seen 12 apostles preaching, and we've seen the church growing by the thousands. We've had a description of their work, how they were in the temple daily in every house and did not stop teaching and preaching about Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 6 says, Now, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a murmuring against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Well, what's going on there? A few words, but a lot happening. In the New Testament church, people sacrificed liberally to keep it moving forward and to support people who financially couldn't make it. They joined the church and they were just struggling financially. Plus, they had a ministry to the widows. There are two groups of widows that are mentioned, Hebrew widows and the Hellenist widows. The Hellenists widows are women who are associated either in their thinking and philosophy or 
genetically with Greek, with Greece. Now, they may have married somebody that was Greece. Typically, the Hellenists were people who had a little different way of thinking about things than the Hebrews did. The Hebrews didn't particularly like the Hellenists. The Hellenists tolerated the Hebrews. They knew who each other were. They understood it in their culture, and there was a clear distinction. Now, in the distribution given to these widows, there was a murmur because the Hebrew women were getting more than the Hellenist women. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, that gives me a great deal of courage, a great deal of hope. This is the New Testament church. This is the church filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And what's happening? There's a complaint. Why? Because there's people there. Do you see that? There's people there. And you know, we want to be the New Testament church, and that's wonderful, but if we do, somebody's going to complain. It makes me feel like maybe we're closer than what we ever thought. There was a murmuring. So what are the 12, the apostles, what are they going to do about it? How are they going to deal with it? They, they're going to model for us God's plan of how to deal with situations. And it will actually evolve into another organizational structure in the church. The first thing I want you to notice is they don't dismiss it. They don't just say, oh, quit bothering us. We've got too much to do. No, they're going to deal with it. Listen, when there's a problem in the church, we need to deal with it. It doesn't just go away. Generally, makes bigger problems down the road. So they're going to deal with it. Let's see how they do it. Verse 2. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. So they brought in a bunch of people and they said, look, we've got a problem. We recognize it. We understand it. We have a specific call from God to teach and preach His Word. It would not be wise for us to stop doing that in order to take care of this problem. So they're praying about it, they're talking about it, and they come up with an idea, and the idea is expressed in verse 3. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Now, do you notice what happens here? These 12 men who are the declared leaders of the church of God are not dictating in one iota what should happen and who should do it. They get together with the church and they say, let's talk about this because we are together on this. It's all of us involved here. What should we do? They come up with the idea, let's come up with seven men, but you decide who they are. You, you know people. You know how people are living. You decide who they are. You present them to us. We'll pray for them, and we'll set them aside for that ministry. And that's what happened. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And it goes on, and it lists the seven that they chose. And I'd like you to look at verse 6. It says, Whom when they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. And the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests 
were obedient to the faith. Wow. So there was a crisis. There was a difficulty. They dealt with it. They didn't deal with it with a strong hand. They dealt with it together. Okay, what, what should we do here? Everybody's talking about it. Okay, you pick seven people. We'll pray for them. We'll set them aside for this ministry. When it was done, the apostles were able to continue preaching, and the church was organized in two ways. The first one I mentioned, the preaching and teaching of the Word, and the second one is ministering to the needs of the people. Ministering to the needs of the people. So, the Word spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. Now, how did they come up with that? How did they decide to do that? Well, obviously, they're praying, and they're asking God, and that helped. But really, in Jesus' teaching and in Jesus' life, He taught them that this is how it should be done, that the church should have a focus on service. Let's look at Mark chapter 9. Go to the left in your Bibles, and you'll come to the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. In Mark 9, verse 33, we have a very interesting verse. Mark 9, verse 33, it says, Then he, that's Jesus, came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, these are the twelve that were there at the time, one of them being Judas. Judas later would kill himself and he would be replaced. But these are the apostles. What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? Now, they were having a debate among themselves, an argument among themselves along the road. They're walking with Jesus on the road, but He cannot hear what they're arguing about. Do you know why? Because they kept going slower to get some distance. It's just a spiritual principle. You cannot have a self-centered argument in the presence of God. Can't do it. You got to separate yourselves. So they let him get on ahead, and then they started arguing, and we're going to learn in just a few moments, they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, in this new church that Jesus is establishing. Who's going to have their name on the marquee? Who's going to be the leader of it? Who's going to be the pope, if you will? And they're arguing about it. Now, this has tremendous ramifications for us in life, and here's how we apply it. We will never, ever get into a rip-roaring, knock-down, drag-out argument with our spouse as long as we sense the presence of Jesus in our house. That's why when we have an injustice come upon us, when we feel like our rights are, aren't being met, when we feel angry and fretful or whatever is going on inside of us, have you noticed what happens to your vision? It becomes very narrow. It becomes very focused. It's laser-like, and we're ready to pounce like a wild cat upon our prey. Hey, when we sense that happening, we got to back up because that's exactly how the devil wants us to deal with human beings. So focused we don't see God in it. So we need to back up. 
and make sure that God is in it and, re and believe his promise that he is with us always. Trust me, folks, you cannot have an argument with somebody without God being there. You might not think about him, but he's there. So let's remind ourselves that he is there, and when we do, we'll behave differently. We'll treat each other more kindly. We'll be more careful. Well, these guys backed away from Jesus so they could argue. Let's go on. Verse 34 says, but they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And Jesus sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Now, this is the strangest thing they've ever heard. That just doesn't make sense. But Jesus is going to illustrate it. Verse 36, then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So the receiving of that child is receiving Jesus and is receiving God the Father. What in the world does that have to do with this debate that they're having? Notice this. Their issue is about greatness. What can a child do to help them become great? Nothing. And what Jesus is pointing out is that all humanity is to be loved. From the person who can do nothing to help you be successful to the person who might be able to help you to be successful. And he's pointing out here, love from God is not selective. You don't just say, you know, that person works over at such and such a place, and I think if I get a little close to them, it might help me to get a better job someday. And so, well, I'm going to love them. And then here comes somebody down the hall, and eh, they're nothing, they're nobody. And, you know, that's what Jesus is preaching against here. Every person we come in contact with is a person for us to love. That's the New Testament church. That's what Jesus is all about. Because when it's all said and done, folks, in the judgment, we're not going to be asked very many questions about our diet. But there will be questions about how did we treat the people we lived with, we worshiped with, we worked with people in the neighborhood, extended family, so forth and so on. Well, we go on. Now, John answered him saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. He's not one of us. It can't be true. It can't be right unless it comes from us. Watch Jesus' response. Do not forbid him. For no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. Boy, have you ever been in a church that has drawn lines in the sand and determined who is and who isn't on our side? And even people doing things in the name of Jesus. 
But because they're not part of that church, or maybe that church's larger organization, it's got to be wrong. It goes on. Watch this. This is just, it looks like it comes from out of the blue. Verse 41. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. What is that about? God is so focused on how we treat one another. He notes that even a glass of water given to another believer is noted in heaven and the concept of reward is associated with it. A glass of water is noted by God. What would a smile, a handshake, an encouraging word, a conversation, what would all that mean to God? Do you see how, why the apostles are preaching about Christ and Him crucified? None of this is possible without the change of the human heart. These guys didn't have it yet. They hadn't seen Jesus crucified. They hadn't experienced the resurrection. They hadn't been broken before Him. They hadn't been filled with the Holy Spirit. But in the book of Acts, they were. And we see different people. That is the gospel at work. Well, it doesn't end there. Go to Mark chapter 10. Another interesting comment about it. In Mark 10, beginning with verse 35, Jesus is confronted. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Interesting way to pray. You know? Hey, whatever we ask you, God, why don't you do it? Verse 36, He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? Then they said, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. They have a conversation. Now, how do you think the other ten responded to this? Surely you're thinking they, they would respond this way. Well, you know, good for James and John. They're, they're, they're good people. I can see it. One on the right, one on the left. Yeah, good for them. I, I, I hope they really enjoy those positions of power. Oh, no. No, you know better than that. And we, we come to uh, verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. Now again, Jesus is going to call them together. Here's a teaching moment. Verse 42. You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. See, that's what they're thinking they're going to get. Power, authority, position. What they say somebody has to do. That's what the human heart wants. And you put that human heart in church, unconverted, that's what they're going to do. They'll just use religious language, but they'll still use the hellish principles. Then it goes on. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be servant of all. 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In God's kingdom, it is about serving other people. It is about other people. It is not about us. If I try to serve without Christ in my heart, I'll have one eye on the person I'm serving and one eye wondering who's watching me do this wonderful thing. Maybe somebody will write about it and put it in the Union magazine and I'll be thought of as being wonderful. It's interesting that in the parable of the sheep and goats, when Jesus gives this great reward to the sheep, they say, we, we didn't know we did that. They didn't keep a record of helping other people. It was a part of them because their heart had been changed through conversion. So, Jesus says, His kingdom will be all around service. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. You have to go to the right. And this will be our last passage today. Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> Paul writes this to the church at Ephesus, which he started. He writes it when he's in prison. You'll see that in the first verse. He says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering. you know what that is? That in modern English we say patience. Patience means you suffer long. Emphasis, suffer long. Bearing with one another in love endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know, this is describing what God wants us to be like. Do you realize if two people get together, fall in love, and they have a beautiful wedding, and, and they start living with one another, do you realize that it's only a matter of time and they're going to have to bear with one another? Why? <clears throat> because we're human. We irritate each other. Why can't she think like me? Why can't he think? <laughs> you know, it's just, we're different. And it's a colossal hardship to try to be married and successful at it without God working with you. It's, it's awful. But here in the church, he's saying, look, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says there's one body, one Spirit. You were called in one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. That, that's not a statement about the Trinity or about baptism or anything. He is saying, look, we're together on this. This is togetherness. And we're to be one. 
And that's why they preached the cross and Christ crucified, because you and I can be vegetarians, we can keep the Sabbath, we can believe in the state of the dead, we can believe in the literal, visible, audible return of Christ, we can have the millennium nailed down, and we can know the eschatological charts to the very day when the death decree will be given. We can know all that, but if we don't love, we're not going to heaven. And we cannot love without being converted. Christ and Him crucified. And so, with humility, we're poised to serve one another. Why? Because our Lord and Savior did not come to be served, but to serve. How exciting it would be to truly care for other people. Imagine a church where every member had that perspective. As they sat in church looking around, they would not be noting how people are dressed or how they're not dressed or whether her hair, oh, how'd she do that? You know, none of that stuff. They'd be concerned for the salvation of those around them. They would sit and those in the pew in front of them, they would pray for each one that today, maybe today, they would find strength and hope in God. Maybe today they would accept Jesus as their Savior. They would pray for the family. They don't know the family. They don't have to know the family. They don't have to know that person. God does. And He responds to those prayers. And it creates in us a heart of a servant. And we pray for those people in front of us and the people in our peripheral view. We can see them and we pray for them. What would it be like to walk into a church where everybody's praying for each other? It'd be the New Testament church. It'd be what God wants it to be. And some of you are so broken and hurt by life, you're thinking, I cannot serve. I can't do anything. I understand. I understand, but I want you to know that serving is one of God's methods of healing. And when we stop being so focused on our pain and start caring about other people, that is a huge step towards being healed. So a church getting together and they're praying for everybody around them. Imagine a church where every visitor felt welcomed and all of them were actually spoken to. Here's a bulletin. Happy Sabbath. Glad they're gone. What would it be like if every member of the church was on the hunt and when they saw somebody in the hall that they hadn't seen before, they said hello. Or if they see somebody looking around like they don't know where they are, what would it be like if that person was spoken to? Said, can I help you? Is this your first time here? You're looking for something. My name is such and such. What's yours? What would it be like? Imagine a church where the ministry of God's Word is so important that the children's Sabbath schools are teeming with parents begging for a way to get involved. Where can I help? These are my children, and you're teaching them about walking with God. What can I do to help? They don't sit on those chairs like bumps on a log watching some woman or two 
killing themselves, but they get involved. They say, I gotta help. These are my kids and these are other people's kids. God loves these people. What would a church be like that was like that? Imagine a church that offered seminars, classes, and support groups to help people negotiate through the difficulties of life. Oh, we do that. And you know what? We do a lot of the other things too. But I want you to know we're this close, this close to being the church God wants us to be. And the difference between my finger and my thumb is a short distance, but it means the difference of the outpouring of God from heaven and us doing church, doing church. And that difference is all of us praying for Jesus to be in our heart, for Him his crucifixion to truly change us and so that our focus